scripture reading, which uh, we've alluded to a couple times in the service already and shared parts of, comes from the Gospel according to John. I'll be reading from the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Lazarus and his sisters hosted a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who joined him at the table. Then Mary took an extraordinary amount, almost three quarters of a pound, of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She anointed Jesus' feet with it, then wiped his feet dry with her hair. The house was filled with the aroma of the perfume. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, complained, this perfume was worth a year's worth of wages. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor? And then he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and he would take what was in it. Then Jesus said, leave her alone. This perfume was to be used in preparation for my burial and this is how she has used it. You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Many of us likely think we know this passage. We have heard this passage, but I wonder how much we've relied on other people's interpretations about this passage and how much we've actually read it to see what it actually says for ourselves. Because when you read this passage carefully, you'll notice several things do and do not happen that far too frequently over the centuries have made their way into our minds during well-intentioned but inaccurate sermons, Sunday school lessons, or what I call it Christian folklore. I have heard Mary and Martha compared and contrasted, usually with Mary as the hero and Martha as the well-intentioned but misdirected workaholic who just couldn't sit still because she got caught up in her busyness and offered an inferior gift to Jesus when compared to her sister Mary. Nowhere in this passage does it teach this. A careful reading of this passage will show you that right away. Martha is just not talked about as much. She's given a single mention, and she is mentioned in order to say that she was among those who joined Jesus at the table after she spent time serving. You see the difference. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus has said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the Servant, right, of all. Serving is good. Martha is good. She just doesn't get the airtime. Martha's service is not unappreciated or unmentioned. Mary is just being defended by Jesus because Judas, ironically, a person that in parentheses, if you look in the text, goes on to point out who was obsessed, by the way, with money and prone to stealing it, is concerned with the cost of the perfume Mary poured on Jesus' feet. 
in a heartfelt expression of thanks, he says, it's, it's worth a year's worth of wages. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor? He wasn't really worried about giving that money. He was concerned he wouldn't have it to steal. The Iona community in Scotland have many beautiful writings and reflections in the spirit of Celtic Christianity. But they have a beautiful reflection that I want to read with you on this passage of Scripture. Listen as I share the beauty and the poetry of it with you. It was on a Wednesday that they called Jesus a waster. The place smelled like the perfume department of a mall. It was as if somebody had bumped their elbow against a bottle and sent it crashing to the floor, setting off the most expensive stink bomb on earth. But it happened in a house, not a shop. And the woman who broke the bottle was no casual afternoon shopper. She was the penniless poorest of the poor, giving away the only precious thing she had. And he sat still while she poured the liquid all over him as unnecessary as aftershave on a full crop of hair and a bearded chin. And those who smelled it and those who saw it and those who remembered that he was against extravagance, they called him a waster. And they forgot that he was also the poorest of the poor. And they who had much and who had given him nothing objected to a pauper giving him everything. Jealousy was in the air when a poor woman's generosity became an embarrassment to their tight-fistedness. That was on the Wednesday when they called him a waster. Now, my friends... Judas was not concerned, we're told by the author, with the poor so much as he was obsessed with the cost of the perfume. He, you see, carried their shared purse, the money bag, for the group. And the author wants us to know that whenever he felt like it, he would take money from their shared purse as he had the opportunity. The money that could have been gained from selling this perfume was so concerning to him because of its value to his own livelihood and how well it could have lined his own pockets. Not what good it could have done for the poor. And Jesus knew this. And so Jesus defends Mary and he reminds Judas and anyone else listening, maybe even us today, that all those gathered here that because, because this expensive perfume um, and all those bothered here because this expensive perfume was poured out weren't really bothered with what it could do for anyone else. They were bothered they might not get to have the benefit of the money for themselves. I cannot count the times that I have heard Christians use this scripture as an excuse to gather in their beautiful church buildings and to worship God or Jesus and to say, well, like Mary, we're doing the best thing. Mary chose to worship. Jesus said there'll always be poor people. So even if we would have chosen to go help the poor, no amount of helping the poor would ever really eliminate poverty. So let's just do our thing and go to our pretty church to hell with the poor. This is both an unfaithful reading of this scripture and is completely shameful. For one thing, Jesus is not present literally and in physical form here today where we have also gathered in community to worship. 
And for that matter, elsewhere, Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do as unto me, and whatever you do not do for the least of these, you have not done for me. Christians justifying their comfort and disconnection from the poor is something Jesus would turn over pews to stop. There has been much discussion of this phrase in our text over the centuries. The poor you will always have with you. Is this the best translation of the phrase? Jesus is actually referring to a passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. Listen to it, and then what you hear Jesus say will make a lot more sense. Now, if there are some poor persons among you, the writer in Deuteronomy begins, say, one of your fellow Israelites in one of your cities in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor fellow country people. To the contrary, open your hand wide to them. You must generously lend them whatever they need, but watch yourself. Make sure no wicked thought crosses your mind, such as the seventh year is coming, the year of debt cancellation, so that you resent your poor fellow Israelites and don't give them anything. If you do that, they will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. No, I tell you, give generously to those in need. Don't resent giving to them because it is this very thing that will lead the Lord your God in blessing you in all you do and work at. Listen, poor persons will never disappear from the earth. That's why I'm giving you this command. You must open your hand generously to the needy among you and to the poor who will always live with you in your land. Rewind or fast forward, whichever the case, to John's gospel that we read today. We may have been reading the passage from John wrong when you consider Jesus' reference to this passage from Deuteronomy. Here's a funny thing about ancient Greek, the language of the New Testament, the writing of John. Sometimes the present indicative form of a word which just indicates something or states something, such as, you always have the poor with you, matches the present imperative form of a word which commands you to do something. Have or keep the poor with you always. In this passage, this word in the Greek language which is translated, you will have, can be indicative or imperative. In Greek, there's no way to tell. So we might, should read Jesus' statement, not as an indication of the way things are, but as a command. Have the poor with you. Stay connected to the poor always. Keep the poor with you always. With this in mind, let's return to the story. The disciples and some close friends of Jesus, they're eating dinner. And Mary, a friend of Jesus, sister to Lazarus, she brings in this nearly a pound of expensive perfume, amounting to what would pay it cost a year's worth of wages, we're told. She pours this perfume on Jesus. This is an anointing scene. And two big events in ancient Palestine would, would call for an anointing like this. A coronation, a crowning of royalty, that is, or a burial. And this scene shows that Jesus is a king, and it shows that he's also about to die. 
Even though he is departing, his mission remains in the hand of those who will follow him. I'm going away, Jesus says, but keep the poor with you always. Perhaps this statement, which has been used, unfortunately, to justify disregard for the poor, is actually a direct command to always have Jesus' mission for and among the poor at the forefront of our thoughts and actions. Keep the poor among you, always. Keep connected to the poor. Stay with the poor. Live life together with the poor among you, always. Now, the author here from the Deuteronomy passage, you see, is making hints at this thing called Jubilee that the Hebrew people would practice, which was a part of the culture, even in the time in which Jesus arrived on the scene. So this, this notion that periodically everyone's debts every seventh year should be canceled is here in the context of De Deuteronomy 15. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, therefore I command you, Open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. You see, every seventh year they would forgive debts. Every 50th year was the year of Jubilee, which was more than just forgiving of debts, but involved every 50 years the release of all the ownership of every piece of land and the release of the ownership of every piece of property, especially slaves. And so you see, it was a charge to hold up a different value system despite the failings of the system that we're in today. There is a different value system here. I don't know of anybody that just forgives debts every seven years, do you? I, I've tried that with a couple banks. <laughs> I asked nicely. They said no. End of discussion. I sent in the next payment. But it reminds us that Christians are called to work for systematic changes in revolutionary ways, all the while taking care of those who are suffering at the hands of injustice because of our crappy systems. Do you know what is shameful in our own country today? As the Kairos Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice puts it, we are experiencing unprecedented poverty in the midst of plenty unnecessary abandonment in spite of unheard of abundance. The poor you will always have with you. Do you hear that old interpretation of that? At least 46.5 million people, one out of every five children, are living in poverty in the United States of America, an increase of more than 9 million since 2008. An additional 97.3 million people are officially designated in our nation as low income. So taken together, if you really, it's, it's not scientific, but if you kind of average that out, roughly 48% of the U.S. population, nearly one in every two people is either poor, you know, at or below the poverty line, or low income, below what it would take in order to live equitably. The poor you will always have with you. Why bother? That's been our attitude. The top 1% of the population own 43% of the nation's wealth. The top 5% of the population own 72% of the nation's wealth. And the bottom 80% own just 7% of the nation's wealth. And as much as we would like to believe that we have made significant progress in other areas, racial and gender inequity remains as deep as ever. People of color, and women of all colors still make 22 
to 35 cents less on every dollar than white men today, let alone the jobs they're not offered. But the poor you'll always have with you. Why bother? If we're completely honest, hearing these statistics and the idea of fighting inequality and poverty, it feels overwhelming, especially when we recognize that we're fighting an entire network of giant systems. We're not even, we don't even know what they're called, alone how to begin to address them. And we're not just fighting those systems, but we're fighting the deep-set values that constructed many of these systems and problems and continue to contribute to them. So what does it mean to fight against poverty when it seems like no matter what we do, we'll never win? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> At the very least, it means it is time to reimagine the phrase, oh, the poor you'll always have with you. We need to hear it connected to how Jesus would have made the connection. Keep the poor with you always. Stay connected, dear person of faith. You cannot separate Jesus from the poor, and you should not be able to separate the church from the poor. Jesus brought good news in tangible ways to the people who were oppressed and most vulnerable. The truth of who Jesus truly was was bound up in this theological reality that he challenged the systems even with his particular mission and his relatively short life. I mean, 33 sounds younger to me all the time. He recognized and responded to the tangible needs around him. Our scripture lesson from John 12 shows us that even the poor, the homeless, the ragtag group of disciples kept a common wallet. I'd call it a purse, but they were dudes. And they saved money together in order to have something to share with those who had needs. I guess a male purse is a merce. Okay, it was a merce. So the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they make even more explicit Jesus' attention to tangible needs like hunger and illness and poverty and the rest. So let me bring this home really quickly before we wrap it up and put a bow on it. The author's inclusion of Jesus' quote and reference to Deuteronomy makes it clear that we should never give up, but rather we should actually find ways to endure while we work extremely hard in doing our best to create a society, a nation, a community that both cares for the poor and the immediate needs, but also figures out where the bodies are coming from that keep getting thrown in the river. So gather for worship like Mary. Hold your hymnal high and raise your voices as you sing just a closer walk with thee. But do not make a mockery of the faith you so eagerly want to celebrate and profess by missing the chance to go occasionally marching at the Capitol or on Washington. Do not make a mockery of our faith by voting for policies or politicians who work to pass laws that favor the wealthy and harm the plight of the poor. If you are forced to choose between sending thoughts and prayers or votes in legislation, let your voting and legislating be your prayers. Keep the poor with you always. This is risky business, by the way. Let me just ask you something I wonder about sometimes. Do you think Jesus got executed by the powers that be for serving at the soup kitchen? I'm asking. Do you think Jesus got hung on a cross in the public square for trying to eat with poor people? 
Do you think Jesus was crucified because he was sending thoughts and prayers to help all the poor people? Do you think he was publicly shamed and beaten and mocked and sentenced to death and left hanging for days on that cross as a public example to deter others from, you know, volunteering to do good stuff? I don't. I think we should serve at the soup kitchen. I think we must serve at the soup kitchen. I think we should have supper with poor folks. I think we, sometimes we should get off our spoiled rotten high horse, sell something, and just give it away. I think we should send thoughts and prayers. I think we should sell expensive things and just give it away, like I said. But, but none of this is what got Jesus killed. Jesus was brutally executed on a cross because he challenged the systems of domination that kept the poor poor. Jesus didn't get crucified for being a nice guy and telling everyone to get along. He got killed for marching on Jerusalem. He got killed for standing on the side of the poor, for rallying the poor to lift their own voices and to raise their own heads, and for reminding the powers that be that hiding behind laws and systems and taxes that favored the wealthy would never hide their sin from God the Almighty. Dear Christians, we have a responsibility, no, we have a calling to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to care for the poor and the dying. But we have a calling inseparably linked to all of that with our own lives to stay connected to the plight of the least of these among us and to stand up for those who have no legs, to speak out for those who have no voice. And at the very least, we cannot support systems or political platforms, or laws, or politicians that promote harm to the poor. Oh, I mean, technically, I guess we can. Sometimes we don't have a lot of choices. But I guess we'll just have a difficult time explaining it to Jesus, who said, keep the poor with you, with you, 